at First Lutheran Church in Minot, North Dakota. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together, as a hen gathered her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, this week's gospel passage has a verse that made my heart just kind of heavy this week, and that is verse 34. And it's not the saddest verse in the Bible, but I think it would make the list. And just an aside that as soon as I wrote that yesterday, I spent way too much time kind of mentally constructing what would actually be on a list of the saddest verses in the Bible, and I'm just barely resisting the urge to tell you all about it. Because today, I want to talk about Luke 13, this passage that is often called Jesus' Lament Over Jerusalem. It tells a hard truth about who we are as people of God and the choices that we make to reject God. Now, this is gloomy stuff, to be fair, but here we are in Lent, the season of keeping it real. And before long, we are going to arrive at Easter. We're going to spend a good part of then the next 50 days with sweet chocolate eggs and beautiful flowers and joy overflowing, all in celebration of the triumph of God's power and intention over the power of sin and death. But I think before we can truly begin to understand and appreciate resurrection, first we must take stock of what is killing us. We must at least acknowledge what it is that leaves us in such dire need of divine intervention and in such need of glorious and miraculous resurrection. And that is the purpose and the, the opportunity of Lent. And so this gospel passage prescribed for today leads us to this very place of contemplation. So verse 34, where my heart has been these past days, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You were not willing. That is the anguish of God in Jesus. Jesus, who was filled with love and acting in love and extending love and then is 
rejected. So Jesus uses this image of a mother hen to illustrate his sort of intention toward God's people. A mother hen wants to gather and to protect and to provide shelter and relationship and goodness, especially in the midst of a confusing and violent and broken world. And God's love for God's people is such that this desire is profound and unconditional, unwaveringly and earnestly persistent. And the human response to this divine love is that it is often brushed off, ignored, mistrusted, mocked, and crucified. You were not willing. God's people have refused to participate in the divine vision of life and goodness for all. So yes, that is pain in Jesus' voice. That is lament. Maybe chickens aside, you real-life mothers and fathers too have felt the sorrow of children who are so deeply loved and for whom you have great and specific hopes, just the best the world can offer for them. But then they make different choices than the ones you would have made for them. And you certainly don't need to be a parent to grasp this anguish that Jesus portrays. It can be any relationship with a loved one. Because the thing is this, no matter how much you love someone, you cannot make them love you back. You cannot make them respond to your love in the way you would prefer. Now God, being God, could have created humanity to turn automatically and instinctively and absolutely toward God and love. But then what kind of relationship would that be with another if they had no choice in the matter, if they didn't choose to love you? Well, not the kind of relationship God wants with us, and so we have freedom and we have choice in whether we want to be in relationship with God. Combine that freedom with the sin that is part of our human identity, and what do you get? Refusal, rejection, unwillingness. You get one of the sadder verses in the Bible. How often have I desired, and you were not willing. To imagine that this rejection and refusal is limited to the particular inhabitants of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago would be a mistake. People today are painfully similar to people in Bible times. This is common ground for all humanity, and we too take advantage of the freedom we have to choose God in order to make different choices altogether. When we need security, from fearful things, we typically aren't rushing under the wings of our mother hen. Instead, we're trusting in our retirement accounts, sighing with relief if we deem it to be enough, and despairing if we don't. Or we're trusting in our high-tech home security systems, and we're confident that our guns and our bombs are all we really need to be secure. And when we need the support and encouragement of relationships and community, we typically aren't seeking an ever-deepening relationship with the beautifully rich and diverse body of Christ, which is the church on earth and the family of God. Rather, we seek people who look like us 
and think like us and live like us and judge like us, residing in comfortable echo chambers of our own narrow vision. When it comes to our identity, we typically don't even want to be that chick that belongs to a mother hen. Instead, we want to stand on our own two feet and cling to that seductive myth of rugged individualism and self-determination. I mean, why can't you or I be the very first person ever in the history of history to prove that we don't need God to save us? Because if we just work hard enough and try hard enough and be good enough and collect enough of the right stuff, well, certainly we can save ourselves. Sure, Jesus can be our friend, but we don't really need a savior. It is all an illusion. But maybe we can just duck under the wing for a sec because we have other things that we need to do. Yes, we're willing to pay lip service, but not to transform our lives in any substantial way, not if it might cost us something. We are not willing to love all the people that God loves. We are not willing to follow Jesus' teaching about serving our neighbors with emphasis on the marginalized of our population. We are not willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps of sacrificial giving. We are not willing to participate in the kind of life God yearns for us to live. And the main problem with that is that the life we choose leads to death and not to life. God has provided another way. God has invited and urged and called and guided and wept. This is the better way. Turn to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Get your fuzzy yellow behind under the wings of Jesus. This is where the good life happens. This is how God's divine intentions for the world begin to take shape in our reality and to transform the world for good when we gather ourselves alongside Jesus. I know we can't do that on our own. People across time and place have categorically proven that we all too often see this freedom to choose between receiving the way of love and rejecting it, and we choose the wrong one. But by the grace of God, there is still a way for us. With the persistent nudging of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to move in the right direction. We can begin to put our focus on true security, true relationship, true identity, true faith, and discipleship. The lament of Jesus is real. The lament of our neighbors and our sisters and brothers around the world crying out because of the effects of sin, sins of pride and greed and lust for power, not to mention the sins of apathy and complicity. That lament is real, too. Our lament of the way sin has disrupted and shaped our own lives and relationships, that is real, too. But what is also real, and what is more enduringly true 
and more exceedingly powerful than even all of that is that Jesus doesn't stop at lament. Jesus pauses outside of Jerusalem to name this hard truth, and then he keeps going. He goes on through the towns and the villages. He goes on healing and goes on teaching about judgment and grace. He goes on through the gates of Jerusalem and into the teeth of the fox, knowing very well what happens when hens submit themselves to foxes. Yet he goes on, enduring unjust condemnation, humiliation, and pain, even to the point of violent crucifixion and death, because the anguish of God's lament over his lost people was stronger than the anguish of pain and death. The anguish of Jesus' lament over a beloved people who reject rather than receive because they are lost to sin and filled with many myths and illusions and blind to their own circumstances, anguish of that depth is born only of the very greatest kind of love, love that is intense enough to endure and overcome even our rejection of it. Loved as we are, we do remain human and imperfect, and so our refusal of the way of love continues despite our best efforts, and the lament continues. But what is lament but sorrow colored by trust? Trust that God who created this world is ultimately powerful enough to redeem it. And though we continue to be free to choose sin, which we too often do, it is God who controls the longer arc. In the scope of eternity, goodness and life are a certainty because God is love. And the sheltering wings of Jesus stand ready and waiting to welcome us in. Thanks be to God. Amen.